welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Vasca, and I am so happy to present this episode about chronic illness and mental health. This episode features the documentarian Will Battersby and his subject, Diane Shader-Smith, talking about Salt in My Soul, a chronicle of Mallory Smith's journey with cystic fibrosis. Thank you for agreeing to be a part of this interview. I'm very passionately concerned about chronic illness and disability issues as a person with disabilities and chronic illness. And so I found this documentary incredibly moving and very, very relatable to my experiences. I wondered if I could talk to both of you about how you decided that it was okay to make this film in terms of the ethics of it. Actually, I'd never really considered not being able to make it. You know, once I'd read Mallory's book, um, you know, one of the producers on the film, Richard Abate, who had helped sell the book for Diane to Random House, you know, he sent me the book thinking it would make a great documentary and I read it and immediately agreed. Um, And I think I agreed because, you know, precisely to your point, what it is, is it's a beautiful, simple story about a really interesting group of characters that raises you know, a, a sort of multitude of questions, you know, really important questions. And, like, you know, like you say, it sort of, you know, uh, it, it raises the, the questions around chronic illness, you know, it raises questions of men- mental health, um, you know, raises questions of, you know, environmentalism, but all through this very simple, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sad story, but hopefully it's also a very uplifting kind of cathartic story as well. So as soon as I spoke to Diane, I realized how, um, you know, she's a passionate gatekeeper of Mallory's story, and quite rightly so, you know, and it, and it took a long time for us to build up the trust. The big question for me was whether, you know, Diane and Mark and Micah were going to be comfortable, you know, telling, telling the story of, of Mallory's, you know, untimely death. And as soon as I realized they were, then I felt very, um, very passionate about needing to make it. And for you, Diane, what was key for you in having this trust that Will was going to indeed treat this story right and get it right? Well, I was approached by Richard, the agent that Will talked about early on about doing some sort of film, limited series or documentary. And I was very clear early on that because Mallory had been writing for 10 years, that it had to be a book first. It just had to be. And I was very lucky in that Random House recognized the urgency of the need for antimicrobial resistance work and specifically phage therapy, and that this book and this story would allow us to move that forward. And to date, I've given more than 200 talks. And at the point that Will came into the picture, I had been on the road giving talks for a year, and it was very clear people didn't know about phage therapy, they didn't know about the antimicrobial resistance category in general, that we were lacking patient voices. And I always say the irony is that every hospital and healthcare system in the country touts patient-centered care, but they don't actually include the patient voice. So when Will came and said he would like to do this, I realized that as much time as I had spent talking and the book had been an LA Times bestseller eight times, Every single time I got in front of a new audience, it didn't matter where it was. Nobody had heard of Mallory. Nobody had heard of the book. We live in a big world with crowded with social media. I mean, when they told me I had to do social media for the film, 
I've always done a little Facebook page, but between Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, what am I, Twitter, and, and it's just overwhelming. So how do you actually, you know, create attention for a small story, but Will seemed to have a vision for what he wanted to do. And it took time, as he mentioned, for us to develop the trust, but it did come and COVID helped that process because it shut things down very quickly and gave more time for editing than he might have otherwise been able to afford. And I think it resulted in a film that everybody seems to love, which of course makes me so happy. But I think when you have a filmmaker who has vision and talent and you have a subject like Mallory and you have the material that we had, it was to say, you know, to put it very simply, it was a no brainer to make this into a documentary. And what we're hoping is that it will shine a light on these issues that we've discussed and mental health, which is probably an invisible illness, probably the categories that are most relatable across the country. The film and Mallory's story addresses both in a very interesting way. You know, she's this tall, beautiful blonde girl who you wouldn't think had any body image issues or had any mental health issues, but she had both. And in the film, it comes out, you know, very clearly that when you deal with these sorts of issues, it does create comorbidities. And I think it's really important that we find ways to tell these patients stories. So hopefully this will pave the way for others to do the same. It's a wonderful film as far as exploring so many different aspects to the story and exploring both what family life was from your perspective, but then also what her journals reveal about the inner turmoils there. One of the lines that I think I most particularly resonated to was that line where she says, but you look healthy. And all of her friends are reacting to the fact that she looks healthy all the time, therefore she must be healthy, right? And this always insurmountable sense of perception of the weight of other people's judgments about us and how that weighs on you. And so I wondered, Will, for you, when you were trying to break down this sense of perception as a filmmaker, what were the most key things for you in terms of making sure that your audience perceived about this family and Mallory's story in particular? You know, I knew very quickly once we'd started the interviews um, that this this question of um, sort of in, the invisibility of things and particularly the physical illness is invisible for a number of years, but the sort of the mental health aspect of it, you know, remains completely invisible. And um, And I knew that was going to be a key point because you know, it, it, as soon as we started doing the interviews, it became very clear that, you know, Mallory's friends and family, you know, family to a lesser degree, you know, Diane was, you know, incredibly close with her, but, you know, that everyone was surprised by the level of Mallory's depression and difficulties. And, you know, everyone was, excuse me, it always makes me want to sob, but, you know, everyone was heartbroken that she had not felt able to share. Right. And I think, um, you know, and I, 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 always as soon as I started interviewing people and I got that very clear sense from them about how how much they wished she had shared those aspects right um the truly invisible and that she'd been utterly reluctant to because she didn't want to burden them you know and and then I mean honestly you know I was so incredibly lucky because you know we discovered you know I mean Diane had her computer her phone you know we discovered all of the extraordinary audio you know, some of which had been published as podcasts, other bits were kind of, you know, were private, but, you know, we were able to really have Mallory give voice to that. That, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's my favorite part of the film, honestly, that, that, that whole section. 
It's a stunning section, and it's also incredible, too, I think, to see how the doctors talk about the support system that Mallory had in place, and to talk about what an incredible family she had. And so this resonated strongly for me as well as someone who grew up with congenital illness. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your perspective as a parent watching through that lens, Diane. How is it for you as a parent both to look back on these experiences while on camera? Well, it's interesting because I want to address two things you said. The fact that Mallory had such strong support is part of why she had such a happy life. But I'm acutely aware from spending so much time in the hospital, how many patients don't have that. And that was an interesting challenge. She had privilege and she had access and she had family. And so one of the issues we struggled with is how do you not apologize for that, not make people feel badly that they don't have that, and yet try to inspire people to think more about the people they care about. Because what I always say is family does not have to be one that you were born into. My mother, my father, and my daughter all died around the same time. And what I say to my friends all the time is they are my family. And that's how I redefine family now in the context of their aftermath, you know, the aftermath of their passing. But I would say that it's been a very, very emotional journey for me. And what's surprising to me is the moments at which I crack. You know, Will has been on this journey with me and I can be tough and I can be strong and I can push forward for things that I really believe in. But every once in a while, and from what I know from my friends in my grief group, it's not uncommon. You can, you have to plan, you know, persevere. You have to go forward. And when you're doing legacy work, when you're honoring the memory of somebody you love, it gives you a place to channel that grief. And that's super helpful. But sometimes somebody says something or something happens and it just all breaks down. But that's part of it because it's a journey of grief. And it's, it's, I've come a long way from the point where I couldn't finish a sentence without sobbing to being able to do an interview, but there are times and it tends to happen in smaller venues with fewer people on a zoom looking at me, or when I'm in front of a small group, I was at a country club in Palm Springs. I was with a group of medical residents, small, these are smaller groups as opposed to big conference halls. Mm -hmm. And those are actually the harder ones to do because they're more emotional. The people connect to you personally, because there's less distraction in the room, but it's, it's important because we're trying to raise awareness for antimicrobial resistance, for phage therapy, for mental health, for invisible illness, for the need to raise money, for the need to bring back the patient voice, all the things that I keep harping on. I'm trying to use this film that Will created and the book that Mallory wrote and the opportunities I'm afforded now because I've been doing this work for three years to actually move the needle as opposed to just talking about it. Wow. And it's so powerful that you're able to actually do those things with this message and this story. And to know that there are really powerful positive outcomes that are a direct result of Mallory's story and her incredible 2,500 pages of notes that were generated. It's incredible to think how much of an effect that can have in the future. And so how do you think about this legacy, Will, as far as what you are aiming to preserve most cogently for your audience? Gosh, uh, that's a good question. Um, I think 
I was thinking about this a little bit yesterday. Um, I think in the current moment, and I think this is one of the reasons the film works, and I never say things like that as a filmmaker, so apologies. But, <laughs> you know, I, I notice in myself how emotional it makes me, like, even talking about it, you know, and I think that we're all living through, if you will, a kind of massive invisible illness, right? We're all living mm-hmm. through a giant mental health trauma. You know, I mean, so many people have lost people and, and I think it's actually a in, really interesting moment. And I hope that the film can do this, that we, that we stop and think about that, that we think about the people who have been going through this, you know, such as yourself, such as Mallory, right? That we, you know, I think it's so, we're so driven as societies, you know, it's like we just keep moving, we just keep going, we just keep, you know, and I think it's hopefully, you know, the film kind of stops you a little bit in your tracks, you know, makes you feel something, also makes you understand that, you know, other people are, as Mallory says, you know, we don't understand what everybody's going through, but it's a really, you know, and it, and it sounds very simple, but it's something I think that we've lost, um, that we can possibly regain out of these last couple of terrible years, right? Is that a real, a better sense of empathy for other people's struggles? But then and also, um, hopefully, uh, that we give ourselves a little bit of a break for feeling how we feel, mm-hmm. quite simply too, right? Because <laughs> I know I've felt more in the last two years than I think I ever have another allowed, you know, and I think it is important that we allow ourselves to feel that, you know, whether it's grief, whether it's depression, whether it's happiness, you know, and I think that's one of the kind of beautiful parts of Mallory's story. She really strips things down, um, you know, because she was so forced to live in the moment with with everything. So I think you really feel a kind of rawness um, that, that it's interesting, as Diane said, I mean, I've never seen a response to something like this before. Um, and it's And it's very moving. It's also, I want to say it's shocking to me. I remember when the book was going to come out, it was so soon after Mallory passed away. And I remember saying to the publisher, what if people don't like this book? And they said, that's impossible. That won't happen. And then I remember saying to Will, what if people don't like the film? And he was like, well, that won't happen. And then we got the exciting news that the New York Times is going to review it. And I was so excited. And Will was like, oh my God, I'm terrified. I'm like, what are you terrified of? You told me we have nothing to worry about. Producers always say that the director in me is terrified. But you know. it's, it's, it's terrifying. It is terrifying to introduce my daughter to the world and have to sit and wait for people to pass judgment. That's the hardest part of all this. And it's the part that makes me the most emotional. And as People like you, who I don't know and had no connection to Mallory, tell me that you like the film and it means something or speaks to you. That is incredibly moving to me and it does propel me forward. And, you know, to your point about family, I hear from a lot of people every single day all over the country who write to me. They reach out through Facebook or they reach out to me through the website where there's a contact and they talk to me about their problems. And sometimes they have family and sometimes they don't have family. Sometimes they thank me for helping enlighten their family because they haven't been able to. And when I gave Mallory's closest friends the book to read, every one of them sobbed hysterically. It's interesting that they also were emotional with Will because that process came, I think, one year later after they'd read it all. But they were so stunned by what she'd written that they didn't know. And Will, one time, I don't know if you remember saying this to me, but you said they didn't want to know. And maybe that's true. You know, maybe it's just too painful. I don't know if you remember in the film where my brother says, you know, my mantra, no pity party. Yes. And I have a lot of private pity parties all the time now. I just, I prefer to grieve privately, although it has happened many times where I crack in a talk because talking about my daughter just brings up all the grief and every 
all the loss of hope. And yet at the same time, I'm flooded with feedback that this is hopeful and this, this story makes people want to write, makes people want to talk, make people want to connect. So, and in my particular case, it makes me want to raise money and awareness because I do think that Mallory died not from cystic fibrosis, which people are living longer from, but from a superbug, from resistant bacteria that stopped being available. And that is really my primary mission. And my husband, who's the one who found phage therapy, he really wanted to use Mallory's story to save other lives because that does help you move forward when you're in grief. It does. It does. And it's so hard to find ways of moving forward that are authentically helpful to the rest of the world. And when you can find that, that's so powerful and incredible. But I also wanted to commend you, Will, really briefly for the way that you found to introduce the emotional element into this documentary. I really appreciated that you gave everyone a copy of the book and let them react to the words as they were reading the words so that it was a structured element that allowed them to show that emotion, but then also have the support of her words in that moment too. I thought that was so beautiful, the way that you did that. Well, thank you. And I have to say, Diane, I have my my catchphrase when I'm talking to Diane is I reserve the right to be wrong because both of us are very opinionated. Um, and I very early on uh, said, I don't think this is a film about writing. Um, you know, and, and Diana said, well, I think it is, you know, because that was all Mallory's passion. And um and, and I, you know, and I had, I'd had everybody read that same passage. I knew it. I was, I was rereading the book on my way out to LA for the initial interviews. And, and I just, I read that passage and was like, oh, I, I have to have, you know, I need this read, you know, and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. You know, honestly, I had no plan for how we use it in the film. And then, you know, and I think it sort of comes back to the invisibility question, actually, is, is the, the writing is, is in that space with Mallory, right? It's, it's her, mm-hmm. you know, she's, She's maintaining her invisibility, but she's still expressing herself. And I think that's why the writing is so powerful. Um, and I realized that that, you know, it was an essential element of her dealing with, with, with the privacy, you know, and keeping things quiet and silent and sort of hidden. And I think that's, that's sort of the power, you know, it's a classic sort of, you know, trope, right? The, the hidden diary, the secret diary, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then one of the things we did, which is I, I have to say, I, sh- I should take full credit for it, but it was my editor's idea was that, you know, you see that the, the the physical aspects of the writing change over the course of the film because you know it's it's a kind of coming of age story and the writing goes from the little girl writing in a journal, you know, all the way through to the typed word, mm-hmm. um, which I love, which was all April's idea. And those words, the, the, all of this, the writing, it's actually her journal. I it's I don't know how I said how the heck did you do that? Yeah. It was quite remarkable, but that is really her stuff. Yeah, that is her handwriting. So um, we, we animated her actual handwriting in, that, in those sections. That's one of my favorite parts. That's one of my favorite parts. And honestly, it is so beautiful to think about the act of writing and the act of putting down those words. And I think that really lends a weight to the film on the whole that is really beautiful. And one of the other things that I wanted to also bring up that I love that you included was that clip from the young man who has CF, who is in the hospital, who says, it's the pandemic, no one can be with me, but I have Mallory's words with me. I love that moment because it not only focuses the attention on 
what exactly is so broken about our healthcare system in this moment when we are in a pandemic and people aren't able to have their family around them the way that Mallory was able to. And when so many people are looking for solace in a very specific kind of a way. It's really wonderful how the documentary focuses the attention there as well. And I just wanted to say how much I really appreciate that, but then also ask one last question. What do you think? I know this is a really terribly unfair question to ask, but I want to ask both of you, what do you think is going to be the best way forward for the healthcare system in general at this point? I'll let Diane go. She'll be more eloquent on this subject than I will. But I know, without a doubt, and I now give talks about this all over the country, we need to hear the patient voice. We need to reintroduce the patient voice. And actually, the New England Journal of Medicine recently launched an ebook, The Power of the Patient Voice. Now, in their case, it's directed towards doctors to improve profitability. From my case as the parent, I believe in storytelling and I believe in story hearing. And I think that this documentary should inspire anybody who's dealing with a chronic illness to consider telling their story in whatever format works for them. One of the things I say is you can be a blogger, a written blogger. You can be a podcaster. You can just do social media posts. You can do photographs with captions, short stories, long stories, memoir, fiction, nonfiction. There's so many ways, but we do need to hear. For example, Ariel, I would like to hear your story. I know it's not really appropriate for me to ask you but you've alluded to your own issues. And of course, that makes me want to know more. And what I think is that the more we speak about our issues, not just, I should say, not just the patients, doctors and nurses, and I think we are starting to hear more from them, ancillary healthcare providers, we need to understand what they're going through because this burnout rate, which we all know is a huge problem. I've come to understand from one of the doctors that I work with, it's not actually burnout because burnout implies that it's something that's within you, that you cannot withstand the pressures. And what he has taught me is it's really a phenomenon that should be reimagined as moral injury, which you can Google because apparently that's there. people are catching on to it. But it actually makes sense, which is that we are doing things to these providers that become an affront to them. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can start to understand what people are going through, so I really focus on the patient voice because that's where my experience is, but it really is everybody in the system. And it's also the providers Another woman that I work with, Marianne O'Hara, she talks a lot about caregiver stress syndrome, and it's real. And so I just think hearing patient stories and telling them is very important. So that's what I would do to improve healthcare. Well, that's a wonderful answer. And you're going to make me follow that. I should have gone first. (laughs) You were the one who said she should go first. I think for me, you know, again, I I think I've been very, very lucky in my life, um, you know, in this regard. But what I've learned from this too is, and it sort of comes back to why I made the film and why I make films is, you know, there's there's a collective experience, right, in, in the healthcare world, right? And I think that every part of it has to remember that everybody else is going through something too, right? The patient is going through something, the doctor is, the, the therapist is, you know, ev- everybody, the cleaner at the hospital, right, is going through a collective experience. And it's vital that people are aware of or try and be aware of, of what that other experience is. And I think, again, it comes back to that question of empathy. And then, you know, one of the things I find just on a kind of um, scientific level most moving about this story is Dr. Paluski, the doctor at UPMC, you know, when Mark, uh, Mallory's dad, 
you know, had really kind of stumbled across phage and Stephanie Strathby's case, you know, um, and Mallory was then the first cystic fibrosis patient to receive phage. And I was very moved in my interview with the doctor, you know, I was expecting him to have been resistant to it, right? Because we're so aware of Western medicine being resistant to anything that it hasn't itself come up with or invented or thought about, or, you know, that isn't a patentable drug and his openness to using it, right? So again, it's, it's, you know, it's the kind of the brilliance of Mark and then the brilliance of the people who help them get this there. It's the brilliance of the doctor and, you know, of course, and then the patient is at the center of it. And I think it's, um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's progress, but it's not always progress through the most expected channels as well that we have to be open to. No, that's incredible. Well, I want to thank you both so very much for your time. This has been a wonderful interview. And I want to thank you so much for your work on the film and your work advocating for patient care that is actually appropriate. I really appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks, Ariel. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, Take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money, we want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. Mm-hmm.